And Naomi Osaka lights the cauldron. The Tokyo Games underway. The 2020 Summer Olympics are finally in full swing. And despite the rules banning all spectators this year, our viewing experience of the Games is, in some ways, better than ever before. That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Evram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Michal, this is the last episode of season one of this podcast. No! Can you believe it? Yeah. Has it felt more like a marathon or a sprint? Um... I'm going to go with marathon. <laughs> to me, it feels like a sprint because I'm right. racing to keep up with you every time. Uh-huh. But don't worry, Brainstorm listeners, because unlike the Olympics, you will not have to wait four more years for us to come back. Right, Michal? That's right. Although you mean five years in this case, right? That we've been waiting for the right. Olympics. Speaking of which, have you been watching the games, Brian? Oh, you bring up a sore subject, Michal, because I want to tell you a little story about a kid who grew up loving the Olympics. And I always love watching the Olympics. My whole life, I look forward to it. And just a couple of days ago, I was sitting there watching swimming, having breakfast, about to watch an exciting race, and all of a sudden my TV died. So now I've been cut off from, you know, the traditional means of watching the Olympics. Wow, just like that. So no more Olympics for you, huh? I'm trying to get a lot of highlights. I'm trying to use the internet. I'm using technology. Amazing. Welcome to 2021, the 2020 Olympics in 2021. So obviously the Olympics are happening, but it wasn't a given. There's been a lot of drama leading up to this, right? There sure has. In fact, polls show that Japanese citizens, an overwhelming majority, did not want the Olympics to be happening, even though they've been waiting a whole extra year to have it. Even though it's a great honor to have the Olympics, they just didn't want to have athletes coming in from around the world potentially bringing the virus in and bringing it into the community. And we've seen so far, there have been athletes that have tested positive when they arrived and the number of positive tests keeps going up. Yeah, and some Olympic teams are taking matters into their own hands now. You can understand why. So the Canadian Olympic team, for example, they've installed 15 essentially COVID smoke alarms in their common areas and living quarters. So it is a metal box. Rough dimensions are 14 inches wide, 16 inches tall, and 8 inches deep. So it's a relatively small box that you simply mount on the wall. And we have a 7-inch touch screen on the front that simply indicates the quality of the air for particulate. And then we indicate a good or bad air quality as it relates to virus detection. So in essence, we simply tell them when we've detected COVID in the air at the lowest possible detection limit so that if we do detect it, the athletes can now leave the room and have relative comfort that in most cases they haven't contracted the virus. That was Gary Saunders, president of Control BioCloud. That's the Canadian company behind the device. Wait a minute. I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around the idea of a COVID smoke alarm. It seems like two things that don't go together. How does that work? So it's basically like a lab in a box. It draws in the air and then it tests it quickly for COVID. And if it spots a problem, it emails an alert to a training supervisor or someone else who's in charge. The impact, according to Saunders, is that the athletes feel safer 
and they feel better about training for longer in facilities that they're sharing with other athletes. The impact it has on their training during the pandemic, the intensity of training, how long they stay in the training room, and their overall comfort level. And those all play major factors in their ability to train effectively, which means shaving seconds, you know, milliseconds off their time, which can make the difference between essentially winning and losing in the Olympics. And really all I was doing with our device was validating what was already the case, which was they were safe. There was nothing in the room. I don't change the quality of the air. I don't, I simply validate that. Michal, that strikes me as potentially a really clever way to gain just a little bit of an advantage. Because if you think about how these athletes train, they need to be so focused on what they're doing and anything that would give you just a little more peace of mind so that you can focus on your technique or, you know, just pushing yourself a little harder really can make a difference with the Olympics. But COVID aside, technology is being used, of course, in a lot of different ways these days to improve athletic performance. I was kind of intrigued by what I heard about that from our next guest, though. Ashton Eaton is a two-time Olympic gold medalist in the decathlon. He won the decathlon in London in 2012 and in Rio de Janeiro in 2016. He's retired from competition now, and he's working as a product engineer at Intel, but he's also involved in research being conducted by the Wusai Performance Alliance. This group studies elite athletes, hoping to glean insights that can be useful to the wider population. And Brian, just because it's been a while since I've trained for the decathlon, Mm. remind us what it entails. I know. I I always thought you were going to get that gold medal, Michal. I mean, I, you know, just in the junior part of your career, you really were tracking towards elite performance. Especially javelin. I I rock at javelin, really. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Just to jog your memory, the decathlon is 10 events over two days. The first day consists of a 100-meter sprint, long jump, shot put, high jump, and the 400-meter run. And the next day, the second day, is the 110-meter hurdles, the discus, the pole vault, the javelin, your favorite, and it finishes with the 1,500 meters. When people talk or hear the word decathlon and they understand it's this 10-event thing, there is some kind of like something that goes off in the mind of, hey, this is like an endurance. This is a, you must be like incredibly fit from a, just like a physical perspective, which isn't untrue. However, when I break it down like this, the Olympic Games, the decathlon 100 starts at 9 a.m. And I think the 400 for the first day, the last event uh, starts at like 10 p.m. So you're looking at 13 hour days. Hmm. What's really wild is within that 13 hours, you're probably physically doing something for about three minutes. The hundreds, 10 seconds, the long jump, you have three attempts. Those are about five seconds. Same with the high jump, same with the shot put. The 400 is, you know, 47, let's call it. Same thing with the second day. The longest event is is probably the four and a half minute, 1500. So over this 26 hour period, you're doing, I don't know, let's call it six or seven minutes worth of work. What does that mean? It means the decathlon is actually insanely technical. It's really just all about technique. And in practice, this is reflected. We would spend all day on drills and approaching the high jump bar and throwing the javelin and those kinds of things. And like 10 minutes on the fitness part, we would run some seriously intense workouts, but they didn't last that long. Because there's so many things to do as a decathlete and learn, it's actually our approach was very intuitive. We almost used no technology. In fact, the most sophisticated we got was video. All I wanted to do was do something and be able to see myself doing it. 
And the reason for that was when a coach says, hey, do this with your left arm, for example, and then you go to do that, you can't like see yourself. So you mm-hmm. have to go in, this is like what being an athlete is about. You have to go in your body and kind of like force your muscles to do that. And if you go to the video, you know, you, you might do the event and think, okay, I did it. And you go to the video and you see, Ooh, actually, no, I didn't. What's happening there. What is absolutely key for athletics is that connection of what you felt versus what you actually did. And when you're a young inexperienced athlete, that gap is super wide and the more experience, you know, we'll call it the 10,000 hour rule for lack of a better term is getting those two things closer together. What you feel versus what is right. This is how athletes in all sports from history till now, this is how we've gotten good. All of the world records, all of the fastest this and the best games that and, and the technique has been based on mostly feel. Maybe within the last five years have we started using like technology, quote unquote, to get better. But it's all feel in the coach's eye. And that's how we've gotten this far, which is pretty incredible. So you mentioned that we've really only gotten to this point in the past five years where athletes are really having more data and, you know, technology to kind of track and enhance their performance beyond the intuitive part of it. And that tracks with basically the gap since the last Olympics. So is this going to be the first Olympics where we see athletes that are prepared at a different level where technology has been a big part of how they trained? It could be. And it, it varies per sport. And, and even within that sport, I think it varies per athlete. I think maybe the sport variation could depend on a couple things. Uh, that sport particularly, like how complex it is, but also the money involved. I mean, some of these, I think, initial things aren't necessarily cheap to either get the sensors or what have you to gather the data or even um, have somebody analyze it in a meaningful way. So I think there's sports that have already kind of been more advanced from a technology perspective. I think probably more of the popular ones like basketball and such. And sports like track and field where I know that a few athletes maybe use something sophisticated like the 100 meter dash where the margins are like really small, but in something where the margins are a little bit bigger, like pole vaults, I don't really see a lot of technology other than video playing a role. So I I still think we're on the cusp. So you mentioned that you're working at Intel these days, but you're also involved with something called the Wusai Human Performance Alliance. Can you tell me what that is and what you're doing with it? Yeah, absolutely. So the Wusai Human Performance Alliance is basically a consortium of people, scientists, this group that aims to essentially use elite performance, whether it's athletes who are professional or athletes who are amateur, and study those people and use those insights to transform human health on a global scale. And the reason is because I think historically, when we're looking at human performance or we're looking at health, One, the research is a little bit disparate. Uh, There's folks that have specific focuses that, you know, just their group does, and maybe the, the research is isolated to that. And two, we mostly focus on the injury or the illness part and how to solve that, rather than look at the people who are the most fit and gaining insight from how they are doing that, how are they maintaining that. So the idea is to extrapolate from the healthiest, best physical performers takeaways that we can then apply to like the regular population to try to promote greater health in general. Yeah, absolutely. And I I don't even know, like promote for sure, but actually make a difference in, I think. Uh Um, And this kind of goes back to that original thing I was saying, which is we have such a limited knowledge on how 
elite athletes are doing what they're doing. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here as a two-time gold medalist in the decathlon telling you that I don't have really any information outside of like how I felt about how I was able to do the things that I did. And had somebody been able to conduct a scientific research study while I was training, there might've been some like interesting insight there. And just seeing the different training regimens of these people at these elite levels would just give massive insight, I think, to the general public. We're looking at everything from the, call it molecular level. Like what, what is happening to the body in these people all the way up to kind of a broad physical level. We can call it like rehabilitation or even just how the body is moving and how, how to capture that information in a meaningful and useful way. So an example would be this idea. Uh, one of the ideas is how can we help recreate almost a digital athlete? And biomechanical motion is something that traditionally has required a lot of money, a lot of sensors, like a very lab-specific environment. But today, there's technology available to basically just use cameras, even the camera on your phone, to be able to get a 3D reconstruction of how the body moves like pretty accurately. You know, understanding from a molecular level what, what's going on in the body to the outside, what is happening well, with motion, I think these things can be applied, geez, in, in countless ways. So you can think about physical therapy, rehabilitation, or even prevention. A lot of athletes in every sport spend a ton of their time trying to not get injured. <laughs> and so uh, there's techniques and practices there, or just common knowledge from an athlete's perspective there that I think maybe the general public misses out on quite a bit. Do you, I mean, you mentioned that you think we're on the cusp of a lot more to come in terms of how technology shapes training, not just for Olympic athletes, but for all kinds of athletes. We've seen how analytics mm -hmm. are applied in baseball, for instance, and how training recovery, you know, is applied in a range of sports from soccer to football. W what's the future going to look like, do you think, as somebody who's, you know, dialed into this world? I think the future will be driven by information quite a bit more. And we're just now, I say just now, but within, within the last few years, we're like trying to figure out how to gather that information. And, you know, sensors have been a big part of that, whether they're in the baseball or the bats or the puck or whatever. And now again, like sensor lists, being able to track things in 3D space with cameras and get biomechanical or just motion kinematic information from that is much more viable and being done like right now. Here's the analogy I like to use. When we looked up at the moon with no telescope, it was kind of just like a big white thing. <laughs> you know, and you were making assumptions about what you saw. And then when Galileo got the telescope out and invented that technology, he was like, oh, those are craters. Like something was hitting that thing. Fast forward to like the Hubble telescope and we aim that sucker just out into space. We learned that all those points of light aren't just like stars, they're galaxies. So I, I feel like in sport, we're kind of right now actually at the Galileo telescope part. <laughs> and I think we're trying to move to this Hubble universe where we are going to understand at the molecular level, when we see a performance, when we see a motion, we will understand all the forces that went in to create that. And then what maybe even internally the body had to create to produce that. And ultimately, maybe if something happens from like an injury perspective, we, you know, we could prevent that or we can even solve it or cure it by helping the body recreate those things that were damaged. 
So, Brian, the last time Tokyo hosted the Summer Olympics was way back in 1964. And get this, that was the first time that events from the Games were broadcast live, worldwide, and in color. And that was thanks to some newfangled technology called satellites. What's going to happen next? They're going to put a man on the moon? Crazy. Yeah, I love this. Back in the day, a British journalist described that Olympics as the science fiction Olympics. Because of all the technology, we can see people around the world competing. It was also the first time that viewers were introduced to the slow motion replay, now a hallmark of sports on TV. But traditionally, the Olympics is really where a lot of innovation has happened in broadcasting throughout history. Yeah, and that's true this year as well. A lot of the innovation is happening behind the scenes, though. So, for instance, this year, the Olympic Broadcast Services, that's the group that ultimately is responsible for capturing all the action on camera. They've got a whole new suite of cloud services. That means they can create more content and disperse it on even more platforms. And this is allowing for more remote production than ever before. So other broadcasters can send fewer people to the games, which is, as we all know, very necessary this year. Yeah, but let's talk about the technology that all of us can see at home, the really cool stuff, or at least those of us whose TV didn't just break. Do you remember the action scenes in The Matrix where Keanu Reeves would freeze in midair and the camera would do like a 360 around him and he's like bending back like, whoa, at least that's how I imagine him. Is I wish you guys light. could see Brian now because the enactment yeah. is just amazing. I look just like Keanu. <laughs> I just need that big black cape. Anyway, they've outfitted some Olympic venues with cameras that will allow us to see athletes like that. And it involves using 60 to 80 4K cameras all around to get every angle. Yeah, there's all sorts of other innovations going on, too, that will impact how we're viewing the Olympics at home. So just another little example. For the first time at the Olympics, we're going to have the ability to see biometric data. It's being used for archery coverage. I know you love archery, Brian. And basically what this entails is there are going to be four cameras that are placed at about 12 meters away from the athletes, and they're focusing on their face. They're analyzing all sorts of things, like even like how the color of their skin is changing because of the contraction of blood vessels that they can see on the captured video. But basically, audiences are going to be able to see you know, the variations in heartbeat and adrenaline rush that are experienced by the archer's body as they're doing their thing. Pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing I love about the Olympics. You know, it comes along every four years. You're not paying attention to archery. And then all of a sudden you'll have something like this and you'll be like, oh, look at her skin color didn't change to the right color. She's going to miss the bullseye. And suddenly you're an expert. For more on these kinds of innovations, I spoke with Rick Echevarria. He's a general manager of the Intel Olympics and Paralympics office. And Intel is one of the game's major sponsors or partners. They're focused on improving and expanding the fan experience. We had a number of different activations for fan experience. They include our 3D athlete tracking technology to enhance the experience of the fans of the track and field event, our true view experience for the fans of basketball. These are the first Olympic Games with a commercial 5G network. So we announced in collaboration with the Tokyo Organizing Committee of the Olympic Games and with NTT Docomo, three usages of 5G. One, to bring augmented reality into the swimming venue, 
uh, multi-views for golf, and then an activation where in sailing, we're basically going to be using 5G to capture video from those boats that are afar, take that data, capture it through the 5G network, working in collaboration with Entity and Entity Docomo, stitch that together and deliver that on a barge that is basically a very large 50 meter screen at very high resolution. So those are the types of things that we were working on. Those are gonna be the core broadcast enhancement experience. We also have virtual reality, similar to the way we deliver that in Pyeongchang, but we're also gonna have a very active virtual reality offering across many, many sports uh, and many venues. So I'm going to ask you to unpack some of what you said. Mm -hmm. I don't know what TrueView is, and I want to hear more about 3D athlete tracking. What does this actually look like and feel like from a fan's experience? Yeah, let me start with TrueView. What we're doing is we have a multi-camera system in the Saitama Arena. When you capture images on a camera, you're usually thinking of 2D pixels, right? They have an X and a Y dimension. What we do is we capture what is called a voxel we brings a third dimension. And what that allows you to do is to then create views of the action that are very, very unique. Think of your ability to create sort of a virtual camera that can capture the action from any angle within the arena. So if you're a fan that is watching the games on television, your mobile device, your PC device, you're gonna be able to then see, depending on how the broadcasters decide to use the technology, they're gonna show you different and very unique angles that you haven't seen before. 3D athlete tracking, this is a uh, brand new technology developed by Intel in collaboration with a number of our partners. And what we basically do, Michal, without the use of any sensors, you're talking about computer vision and artificial intelligence. You're basically capturing a race, and I've just used the 100 meter sprint as an example. You're gonna capture that race. You're gonna create basically a three-dimensional matrix that it's you know, an overlay on the skeleton, basically. That information at every little step of the race is going to get captured, is going to get analyzed, is going to get processed, is going to be integrated with a number of graphics overlay, it's going to be delivered to the broadcasters, and then the broadcasters are going to use certain elements of that analysis to enrich the broadcast experience. So I will give you an example. One of the things that we're able to measure in fine-grained detail with this technology is the acceleration of a runner. And so sometimes you think when you're looking at a race, Usain Bolt was a great example because whenever you watch the, the 100 meters with Usain Bolt, you saw that at the last 25 meters, it felt like he was accelerating way faster than everybody else. When in fact, when you look at the data, he was just decelerating at a slower pace than everybody else. And so for people who follow track and field and to follow the sports, this sort of different point of view on the race and the analysis is very rich. For us, from a technology point of view, we love this particular solution. Why? Because it requires a tremendous amount of compute from our Xeon processors. It means that we have to optimize every aspect of the data, capture and extraction, which is heavy duty use of our Optane memory, right? We love the fact that the round trip, think about the time the race is over and the time the broadcaster is doing the analysis, you have 10 to 20 seconds. So our networking technologies need to be working very well. Our collaboration with our cloud partner, Alibaba, and our collaboration with OBS, everything has to be so fine-tuned that is just a great example of 
performance and compute and networking and storage all coming together to deliver a brand new experience for the fans around the world. So that's why we, you can tell we're, we're pretty excited about this solution from Intel. And, and you can do this without making the athletes wear those funny suits with the little balls on them, right? Exactly. They're not be wearing those. Awesome. No sensors. And <laughs> I want to bring up another point, by the way, because I think it's important to know how we think about the technology work that we're doing here. 3D athlete tracking, I just described to you an example of the application of that technology to enhance the broadcast experience. But months ago, we actually announced a collaboration with Exos in the U.S. where we use that same technology to help athletes improve their performance. So one of the important points to note is that we're deploying technology here in the games. We're thinking, of course, about the usages and the solutions for the games. But we're also thinking that many of these technologies and solutions that we're deploying here are going to have a much more broad application. So 3D athlete tracking, you know what? Probably a good place to apply it in maybe perhaps in the medical field later on to do some injury prevention. Uh, and you'll see likewise with a number of other technologies that we want to apply them and get bring benefit to, to humanity in other different applications. So, Michal, listening to Rick talk makes me think back to something that Ashton was saying when we spoke about how he really thinks that we're only starting to scratch the surface of how we can use technology, how athletes can use technology to improve their performances, which is pretty stunning if you think about it. You know, it feels like athletes have been pushing the edge for a long time now. And to imagine that technology will allow them to go way beyond that is just kind of hard to imagine, but exciting. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because there have obviously been a lot of issues with performance enhancing drugs, which is not allowed, which is considered cheating. But, you know, that was kind of something that would give athletes an edge. And it'll be interesting to see if over the next few years, as this continues to advance uh, on the technology side, if tech and, you know, analytics tools and AI if that's the thing that actually can give athletes an edge. Yeah, and you have to kind of think like the rich are going to get richer, the people with the resources to apply that are going to have an advantage. And, you know, in a way that feels a little bit unfair, but that's sports. You know, everyone's always looking for the advantage. I think for now, though, Brian, what we really need to focus on is your advantage of or disadvantage for now of not having a TV. You need to get your TV fixed or, you know, get a new one so you can watch. Michal, thank you for bringing that up. I am totally focused on that. It's a major challenge. It's a technology challenge. Do I go OLED? Do I go regular LED? How big do we go with the new TV? But I, I got to get out there and get a new one because I still have like a week or so of the Olympics I can catch if we get on top of this. All right. Well, let's all wish Brian good luck with his hunt for a new TV. And that's it for today and for season one of Brainstorm. This means if you've missed any of our previous episodes, you now have time to go back and check them out. And while you're waiting for season two, I recommend subscribing to Fortune's Leadership Next podcast. It's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for joining us all 40 episodes, and we'll talk to you soon. The Brainstorm podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced by Wyatt Orm and Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. And don't worry, 
brain yeah sorry but don't worry sorry <laughs> brain, brain cats. don't worry brain cats <laughs> don't worry brain cast fans i'm totally fried i'm doing my best here <laughs>